Well, welcome, Purple. It's so nice to be with you. Yeah, and I just realized yeah. I'm wearing purple. So. Well, uh, <laughs> I chose black today, which might not be the right choice considering how dark the rest of the room is. But Yeah, no, it's all good. Yeah, just really looking forward to um, getting to know you, hearing your mindfulness story. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to uh, chat with you. Yeah, so I don't... Um, we start with your your story you know when did you first um encounter mindfulness and when when was that for you what was going on in your life Ooh, yeah that's uh like a lot of people i think who are on some kind of mindfulness journey i kind of came through to it through the door of suffering um Let's see, I, uh, I am almost 49. I discovered Buddhism when I was about 22 or 23. Um, I had been waiting tables for a couple of years after dropping out of college and just sort of at loose ends, um, partying like a rock star, uh, just sort of going nowhere and going really, really fast. Uh, and yeah, I was kind of at the end of my rope. Um, I was pretty burned out on life and everything in general, and, uh, was in a pretty disturbingly, uh, dark and evil place. Uh, and yeah, I just stumbled across a little book on Buddhism. I still don't really know why I picked it up. I've never been interested in Buddhism, uh, or any religion at all, really. Uh, but I read it cover to cover. Uh, it was very short. And something in it just connected somewhere uh, in a way that uh, nothing else ever had. It was like there was a loose end flapping around inside of me that had finally found something to plug into, but I didn't even know it was there. Um, it was very bizarre. Um, and I always, I always hear stories like, oh, such and such saved my life with such suspicion, you know, like, unless it was like Batman. And you're like, yeah, okay, right, I, I can dig that, but... Yeah, I feel like this uh, this pretty much saved my life. Um, so I started to explore and uh, came across the, the three sort of main branches of Buddhism. Um, and the only thing that was really in my town was Shambhala. We had a Shambhala center. Mm. Uh, so I started going there and was a member there for five or six years um, and eventually drifted away from that and kind of participated in some Korean Zen, some Japanese Zen for a while, and then some Theravada. Uh, and eventually discovered secular Buddhism, which kind of was the second big resonance for me on this journey. Um, it really spoke to my kind of practical, level-headed, sort of materialistic approach to all of this. Um, and then I discovered Shenzhen Young and his teachings, which sort of brought it all together. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I realized early on I wanted to be some kind of a teacher. This had helped me so much and had been such an important turning point in my life. I wanted to be able to share it with other people. Um, I don't think I'll ever be any kind of Buddhist teacher. But as the mindfulness movement sort of gained speed and the science behind it started to get more small and, and really emerge. That became obvious as the, the path for me to, uh, to choose. So yeah, I went through all of, uh, unified mindfulness's teacher training, um, over the past five years. 
Um, I've been working with clients privately and publicly for probably seven, eight, nine years. Um, yeah, and this, this continues to be sort of the, uh, the crux of my whole life, uh, both teaching and practicing. They, they have mutually reinforced each other in ways that I never could have expected. So that double-edged sword has kind of become the, uh, the center of pretty much everything that I do. So, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing yeah. uh, a couple of things that really, um, uh, came to mind for me as you were talking is this image of this plug, right? Like, it, I love that. I'd never heard that before. It's almost like something's off, right? Something's off and, then it was like, oh, this makes sense. So I'm curious if you could say more about that, because I'm thinking of listeners who might be feeling that way now, right? Like, you know, I'm doing the things in life, or maybe I'm not doing the things in life, whatever, however life is going, but something feels like it's off. So what was that that connected you? Do you remember? Or, um... Yeah, it was. And I think that's one of the hardest things about the way I was suffering and I'm sure the way a lot of other people are suffering is I don't want to make it sound very cliche. Like there was a hole or an emptiness or something that blase, but I, it wasn't specifically that I felt that something was missing and all of a sudden I found it. Something was very off in my life. I was miserable. Mm. Most of it was self-imposed you know, drugs and alcohol and partying like crazy and, you know, just living like a 21 year old server, you know, that was kind of the norm. Um, but yeah, it all, it all felt like it was leading nowhere, but none of it was very well-defined. It was this just sort of amorphous nothingness that was going on. Um, this vacuity or pointlessness, and when I read the book and read the teachings on suffering, like, mm-hmm. you know, Buddha's ideas on why we suffer, because we're always dissatisfied with the things, the way things are. And realizing that it was my fault that I was responsible for my suffering was probably the biggest eye opener because I was a champion of blaming everything else. You know, like, oh, I, I dropped out of college. Well, I was forced to kind of forced to go to college. I wasn't ready, but that was the only choice I had. And, oh, I ended up waiting tables because I wasn't fit to do anything else. You know, I didn't choose this life. And, you know, it turns out you pretty much do. You know, all of this was at some level my own intentions. Uh, and I think that that was a big part of it. But I think it was the path out of suffering, you know, this idea that there was a a path that relied on my own newer intentions and actions and motivations and practice. I guess maybe what the biggest connection was, was learning that I was responsible mostly for my own suffering, but also being given the responsibility to change it. Yes. So seeing those things articulated without ever having known that was the issue was sort of where the plug-in came. The problem and the solution both became clear at the same time. Right. That's that's amazing. Yeah, because it's almost like 
you have a way to climb out of the hole, right? Like we can, we can do it. <laughs> we right. just, it's up to us. That's really exciting. Yeah. And do you remember what your first practices were? Um, did you do meditation on the breath or something else? And did you have a teacher at that time? Uh, it was pretty much just meditation on the breath. Uh, for the first over a year, uh, all I did was study. Um, I'm a pretty nerdy, logical guy. I like to uh, discover as much about a new topic as I can. Uh, so I just read dozens of books um, and slowly started to parse out the different approaches. Um, so it was over a year before I actually started meditating. But yeah, it was uh, it was just following the breath, uh, just basic shamatha practice. Uh, I was actually living in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. Uh, and when I moved back from there to Lexington, Kentucky, where I have been living since then, uh, is when I found the Shambhala Center. So that became more of a Shamata Vipassana type of approach. But I never got into the more Vajrayana uh, teachings of Shambhala. I always pretty much stayed on the, you know, kind of the suitable for the general public uh, approach. And then after I drifted away from them, you know, I've been through many different kinds and I've kind of come full circle back and I'm now working with a Dzogchen teacher. So it's a, it's been an odd journey. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a bit about those terms maybe for the audience, like what shamatha is and Vipassana and practicing now? So I kind of use the, the Pali terms there, Pali being the, uh, kind of language of the Brahmins, the official written language of the Buddhist time, although what he spoke was, or that was Sanskrit, sorry, not Pali. Uh, So uh, shamatha being essentially concentration practice, you know, focusing on uh, something like your breath or a candle flame or a, a reasonably constant noise. And whenever your attention moves away from it or slides away from it, kind of gently bringing it back, and then Vipassana being the more insight-related practice that <clears throat> kind of historically uh, you build a certain level of concentration with shamatha and then use that concentration to kind of examine your thoughts and emotions and feelings and uh, point it inward. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was kind of a, the way they taught it at Shambhala was kind of a one-two punch. They were kind of combined together as sort of a not you do one until you get to a certain point and then you switch to this but it was kind of the the whole ball of wax all at once um and then zogchen is uh usually translated as the great seal or the great perfection it's a tibetan style of practice that sort of skips all of the shamatha vipassana stuff and goes directly to understanding your own basic uh enlightened reality it's Mm. sort of a teleportation device that is extremely difficult to describe and without a doubt the most simple practice out there which of course makes it the most difficult to both explain and practice somehow so yeah that's so interesting and it and it really ties into our whole theme around the tailored mindfulness experience right that there isn't one thing that everybody has to do and that that's going to work 
for everybody. It's like how and and how did you know when when to do one, when to do the other, mm. when to switch? Is there something that tells you you need something different? Yeah, or something going well, on in your life. That really didn't become a skill that I had until I started working with uh, Shenzhen. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Having so many different methods within unified mindfulness. It was always kind of like being spoiled for choice, you know, like mm-hmm. you're standing in the aisle trying to pick out toothpaste and there's a hundred of them instead of four. So it was a little overwhelming at first, but as I practiced with a lot of different methods, it started to become clear when one would be more appropriate than another. So it sort of became my own internal guidance system. Uh, And I became very comfortable with switching if my first idea didn't work. Um, You know, Shinzen Mm -hmm. has this idea of ion, uh, interest, opportunity, and necessity. So starting with a specific meditation technique, and then if you find something in your experience very interesting, or there's an opportunity to work with something or explore something, or there's a necessity like a something is re-traumatizing you or something is moving you outside your window of tolerance. Those are sort of the three categories that he likes to use for reasons to adjust the technique or move to another one. Mm -hmm. So I kind of absorbed that. And now it's become, like I said, sort of an internal guidance system to where it's become very intuitive so that if I'm working with something specific and the technique I'm using doesn't seem to be beneficial, then I'll dial it to something else without the 100% hardcore expectation that that's going to solve it. I'm willing to try different things and to be, it gets more artistic than scientific. Hmm. Like you just sort of start weaving your way through the experience with different ideas and approaches, being kind of open and curious to it as a whole. And I think that openness and curiosity is more vital than probably anything else. Yeah, that that's so that's so great and interesting how over time you develop this kind of intuitive sense of what's needed. Mm, and yeah. I'm I'm curious, um, does that also uh, reflect in your life? You know, that what were the changes that you started to see in your life? Do you have did you have more of a sense of where to go. You mentioned you moved, you know, so did the, how did the practice affect your decisions in your life? Um, at that point, not a lot. That was, I was probably 25 when I moved back from Florida. So I'd only been practicing sort of in a not very committed way for about a year and studying for a couple of years. It wasn't until I practiced with Shambhala for five or six years, uh, and I lived at their retreat center in Vermont. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I sort of discovered secular approaches that I really settled into a practice. And it wasn't until I discovered Shenzhen that things really solidified. And I, I'd always been told by various participants that, I needed to pick a lineage or pick an approach and stick with it. Cause you know, I did Mm -hmm. Tibetan and then I did 
Japanese Zen and I did Korean Zen and I did Theravada Buddhism and I did secular Buddhism and everybody was like, you know, you, you're not going to find the perfect thing. You're just going to have to pick something and settle warts and all. And then I found Shenzhen and I was like, well, that's not true. Here it is. (laughs) I've been waiting for it for 20 years and I found it. So that was really, that gave me the versatility in my practice to finally feel like I had that same sort of versatility in my life. So that sort of intuitive decision-making on the cushion has sort of translated into the rest of life where I've never been a hardcore planner, but I'm not totally spontaneous either, kind of in the Mm. middle. And that's become a lot easier to pick a decision and go with it and not have to expect it to be perfect. Yes. Because it's the same, it's kind of a mirror image of practice. You know, I may sit down for a 40 minute sit thinking, oh, I'm going to do this one particular technique with a pretty concrete idea of what I want out of it. And 20 minutes later, it's completely changed. It's not exactly rolling with the punches so much as it is being open to that possibility at all times. So I don't know, life just got a lot more fulfilling because I feel like I kind of stopped in both my practice and my life, stopped expecting everything to be a certain way. Yeah. And once Mm -hmm. that freedom kind of opens up, it becomes a little more... uh, little less limiting for everything. Yeah, that's so interesting. It reminds me of, um, I just heard actually Shinzen talk recently about um, effort, right? So there's a lot of us that like kind of effort through life. And so then when we find, oh, we can let go of effort and and just relax. And we think that's the answer, right? Like, oh, I'm just going to relax and I'm just going to tell everybody to relax. But then there's other people or other times when you might be like just too soft and, you know, and you need a little structure. And so it's like knowing that it, there's not, there's not one way, I guess. It's just that, right. that intuitive knowing but it can be really um destabilizing at times at least I've found I don't know if you found that like um you know I'll have a for me I have a sense okay well this is where I'm going in my life and then maybe I'll go on retreat or I'll go on a trip or something and I'm like that wasn't the right or I I don't really feel excited about that anymore like what else should I do (laughs) and it's it's confusing no how do you do you do you find there's periods of just confusion and do you just stay stay with the confusion how do you work through that well can you unpack that like when uh, are are you relating uh, that idea of confusion to both practice and life like sometimes on the cushion there's that confusion and then sometimes in life there's like even though i'm more open to possibilities things seem sort of muddled is that kind of what you're pointing toward yeah, I think I think more in life. I find sometimes for me I'm lucky I guess practice I I find I can I can be at home in practice and in, di- in you know different techniques doesn't really matter so much but then it's like oh no. <laughs> what do I do in my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I work with clients on and it took me forever, is eroding that sort of wall between life and practice. Yeah. 
you know, mm-hmm. and Shinzen system is really great for that because, you know, it has life practice, it has formal practice, it has informal practice, it has many different ways to bring the practice home at all times. But yeah, that that's a really interesting perspective because it sounds kind of like what you're saying is like on the cushion, I'm really at home in what I'm doing. Like whatever life on the cushion throws at me, practice allows me to work with. But then as soon as you step off the cushion, there's that possibility that, well, I'm no longer like deep in meditation. Now I have to pay bills and figure out what's wrong with the car and take the kid to the doctor. And yeah, that's a. And for me also helping, how do you help all the problems in the world? Right. Right. What do you choose? Yeah. (laughs) For me, that answer has always been clear, uh, is helping myself, getting myself Mm. in the, I sounded really selfish when I said it out loud, uh, finding a way for me to be at ease with myself before I could start being able to help others. And that was the longest part of this journey. Um, And still I struggle in helping clients sometimes, you know, especially if they're struggling with issues that used to be very big for me or are currently, you know, something that I'm, I'm working on. Um, but again, that one, two punch of practice and teaching really mutually reinforce each other and makes it both a lot more fulfilling. Um, but yeah, I think the eroding that wall between practice and life has been the biggest thing realizing that I can bring a technique to bear any time off the cushion and then also starting to understand and notice the benefits of a cultivated meditation practice in life. Realizing that when someone does something stupid in traffic, I still yell and scream, but I only do it for like 10 seconds and it doesn't ruin my day. Yes. You know, rather than holding on to that for the next six hours and still being mad on my way home. Um, Noticing that my patience seems to be expanding even when I'm not working on it. Um, Noticing that my leniency with myself, my kindness towards myself seems to be more relaxed and open than it used to be. And I think that's one of my favorite things about both Shinzen and Zogchen practice is this idea that there's no separator. You know, yes. you mentioned effort and, you know, this, this idea of efforting and, you know, there is Shinzen's practice of do nothing and, uh, Shikantaza in Zen and Mahamudra and Zogchen. There are so many practices out there that are effortless mm. where it's simply a mode of relaxing any technique or involvement or intention and simply being with your natural awareness as it is, that's been huge for me because for the longest time I was plodding ahead one step at a time, gritting my teeth, trying to be mindful at all times, trying to use a technique, no matter what, trying to examine my experience, no matter what. And that was very grueling and it got exhausting to the point where I just had to stop and in stopping and relaxing that effort, everything seemed to kind of open up. And I realized that that potential is there on the cushion and off the cushion to sometimes drop that effort 
and just be like, I remember the first time I learned see, hear, feel, and I had been practicing noting meditation for a while. And, you know, Shinzen and Julianne and all these wonderful teachers were saying, you know, you can do see your feel on the cushion. You can do it in the car. Uh, you can do it standing in line at the grocery or the bank or while you're waiting for the doctor. And I remember asking the question, well, when can we stop all this shit and just be, <laughs> yeah. just like be people not working on a technique? And there was just such confusion. They were like, well, like at some point it just, you just do. Like I, they didn't know how to explain it. And I, now I understand because it's something you can't really explain that easily. But that for me was the biggest step towards opening up practice to my entire life and relating to life and its insanity and confusions in a way that was a little more open-ended. You know, so I definitely strive for specific results in my life. You know, I want certain things out of the work that I do and the practices that I do and the relationships that I have. So I certainly aim them in a certain direction. But if they don't hit the target in the way that I thought they do or I thought they should, then I'm usually much more curious about exploring where they actually did land as opposed to getting furious or hurt that it didn't turn out the way I thought it would. Yes. I love the curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. Like that seems to be a big part of it just to, Very that much. you can still, and a way to balance it, you can still have goals and ideas about what you want, but at times it just kind of, huh, I wonder how it's going to turn out. Right. Or, yeah. you know, it's all, there's so many expectations, you know, we, mm. and I think there's a common misconception that things like equanimity um, or peace or calm or acceptance mean accepting situations as they are, you know, accepting a negative situation. You know, one of the biggest criticisms that the traditionalist level at secular mindfulness is, well, let's look at the corporate world where, you know, a lot of times you offer uh, corporate mindfulness seminars and the criticism has always been, you're not attempting to help people see their true selves or be free. You're just trying to create uh, docile workers that their corporate overlords can get more work and hours out of. And I've been doing this for a long time and I've been working with other people who have been doing this for a long time. And that is categorically false across mm -hmm. every width and breadth, every optic of this, that is absolutely false. And being able to see someone catch a little glimmer of relief or insight and knowing that that is something that they can fan on their own or they can get guidance or help from another coach I feel like that has opened up an entire new world that the traditionalists don't have much of a grasp on. Like, I feel that there is a, a brand new wing of this whole thing that we're kind of exploring that has enormous potential because we're never encouraging people to accept a negative circumstance. If you are working in a mom and pop shop or a corporate environment or working for yourself, 
and the circumstances are overtly negative and you're suffering because of them, I think we help teach people to accept their emotional reaction to that, mm, yeah. but to still strive diligently to change those circumstances. I feel like we're helping people plug in more easily to their own intuition and see things a little more clearly so that they don't have to accept things like that. But the emotional response to them doesn't send them on such a roller coaster, if that makes sense. I don't, totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost like you get the clarity. You might be really mad about something and it's not like, oh, let's just not be mad about it and just like show right. up every day and be smiling. It's like, well, what's going on with the mad and what's mm -hmm. actually happening and what are some possibilities? Do you have maybe an example from your own life or a student where they were able to, they, the practice helped them make a change or uh, um, yeah, the situation? Uh, specifically from my life is, you know, I worked in the service industry for 25 years. Uh, and I, while I was studying to be a teacher and while I was learning those ropes, uh, I continued to be a bartender and I was miserable. I hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want to be in the service industry anymore. And the job that I was in was not taking advantage of me, but it was a delicate situation that finally got to a point where I couldn't figure out exactly what was expected and felt like I was in an uncompromising position. Uh, so I quit and mm -hmm. it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. You know, I was continuing to practice. I was continuing to study and work with clients and learn to be a better teacher. And I think me from 15 years ago would have said, well, your perceptions about this situation are probably skewed. You know, your reaction to this is probably inaccurate. You know, you need to up your practice. You know, you need to work with this suffering. You need to stay in this situation and work with this suffering. Whereas me from five years ago said, there's no reason to put up with this bullshit. Yes. You're absolutely unhappy. And your experience keeps telling you over and over and over again that you're unhappy. So I quit and it was great. Um, it was exactly what I needed. And I think without so many years of practice, I wouldn't have been able to trust that yeah. clarity that I was seeing things clearly enough to make an informed decision about where to go in a more healthy direction. So yeah, that, and it got to the point where my practice wasn't strong enough that I could accept the emotional response to it. Like the situation was so negative that I was being very much pushed and pulled by my emotional response to it. So there was no level of it that I was working with in a way that could smooth things out. So mm -hmm. putting that job was the only logical, intuitive, spiritual, psychological response that made sense. Beautiful. And were you scared? Oh, quit? yeah. 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 And you just kind of work with the fear as well, yeah. right? Because yeah. then that meant I was going to rely primarily on working with uh, mindfulness clients to make a living. And yeah, that was absolutely scary. And quitting something that you've been doing for 25 years is, you know, there's a lot of ruts uh, that were grooved into my brain and my body and my life. 
from doing that particular job or being in that particular industry. So yeah, it was very scary, but it was, it was much more freeing than it was scary after the initial jump. Yeah. Wonderful. And what is your, what is your life like now? You know, at both in terms of practice, you know, we talk about the various pillars of practice, formal, informal, um, retreat versus, um, just at home and also, well, the give support, get support. Uh, right. we tell us a little bit about what that's like, what that's like for you now. And yeah. also maybe some benefits that you're experiencing. Right. Yeah. So life practice, uh, has definitely been, you know, the, the biggest of Shenzhen's four pillars for me. Um, you know, and when we talk about those specifically, I think Shenzhen says, uh, life practice, retreat practice, and then getting support and giving support. Mm -hmm. like yes. Just mentioned, um, life practice is the strongest one for me. Um, I have trouble finding the time for extended retreats. Um, I try to do several per year, several weekend retreats solo, uh, just by myself. Uh, but yeah, it's mainly life practice, you know, sitting formally a couple of times a day. Um, and there, there's been a lot of sort of Vajrayana Buddhist techniques that have worked their way into my informal practices. So a lot of Shinzen type micro hits coupled with a lot of other, uh, you know, more Dzogchen oriented kind of micro hits. Uh, I've become comfortable being a hybrid practitioner and coach. You know, mm -hmm. sort of my background is extensive. Uh, why it covers a whole lot of ground and I've become right. comfortable over the years and in incorporating all of that into my practice and the way I, I help or the way I coach people. Uh, so yeah, retreat practice is something I definitely need to work on. I need to get on more and longer retreats, but my, I, I love, I think getting support and giving support designed as two pillars are amazing, a great innovation or, you know, idea on Shenzhen's part because I give a lot of support through coaching, and that's certainly something that makes me a better person and a better practitioner. But I also get support from so many people in the UM community that have been doing this so much longer than me. And it's such a casual community where I can just email or text somebody and ask a question or ask them to clear something up. I feel like there's constant support coming from there. Um, I have a Zogchen teacher that I work with as often as I can. So I'm constantly getting support from like a very deep coaching and teaching aspect. Um, but I feel like those two things kind of twined together are kind of the fuel that keeps all of this going for me. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience about how you teach if people wanted to get in touch with you? Um, what are you offering? And also any, I guess, um, parting words of wisdom for, for people that are just starting out and starting to figure out how to do this mindfulness thing. Man, I am terrible at parting words of wisdom. <laughs> That's... Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, so I work one-on-one -on -one with clients. Um, you know, I work with groups as well, but, uh, I certainly, I think the, the thrust of my, my solo business is working one-on-one -on -one with clients. So uh, I have a website, brentpurpleoliver.com 
and the email is brent at brentpurpleoliver.com. Uh, I like to offer free consultations to people just to see, just to have a casual chat and see if we'd be a good fit to work together, you know, find out what they're looking for. Do they want to work with a specific issue or do they have a specific goal in mind or is it kind of overall mental health? Um, and then I tend to work with people in 50 minute sessions, uh, once a week or once every couple weeks, uh, just sort of helping them shape their practice in the direction they would like to go, uh, making sure we can address a long-term vision while at the same time still working on all of the short-term stuff that pops up, you know, the little windows and walls that constantly, uh, pop up in the middle of our practice. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, this is what has become most fulfilling for me is connecting with people who resonate with the way that I work and the way that I teach, which is admittedly rough around the edges and non-traditional. Um, it's filled with a lot of references to horror movies and a fair amount of cursing. Um, I'm not for everyone. And it took the first several years of my teaching career for me to stop trying to appeal to everyone mm-hmm. and to be able to relax into who and what I am. Uh, my teachers have taught me that one of the most important things in working with people is that you like them and they like you. You know, this isn't really a cold, hard business transaction. This is personal. It's intimate. And if you don't enjoy working with the person that you're working with in this sort of mindfulness approach, then you're probably not going to get very much out of it. So I guess those are my parting words of wisdom. If you're looking for a teacher or you're looking for a coach or you're interested in getting into mindfulness, look around and see if you can find a person whose persona or approach Uh, something about them speaks to you in a specific way and you feel comfortable and at home and like they kind of vibe with you on a level that uh, means something. Yeah, that's a great advice. Uh, And it reminds me of something else that somebody told me, which is you don't need to suffer alone, right? Like that to just that they're at all levels Like you have a teacher, you know, I just got back from retreat and was very confused. So reached out to a teacher so that at all levels we need, we, we have each other and, and it's good to connect with people that, that we enjoy yeah. spending time with. Yeah, <laughs> to learn absolutely. Together. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the people I work with don't have a community like we do. You know, mm-hmm. we, I have several different communities that of teaching and of practitioners that I can rely on. But a lot of the people I work with, you know, their spouse isn't into it or, you know, their partner isn't into it or their friends aren't meditating or getting into mindfulness. So a lot of times they feel some trepidation because they're starting this out all alone. So you become a community of two with them and making them feel like you see them and you hear them and you understand the type of suffering that they're going through and normalizing all of that for them, I think is a really, really big step in this. Cause I think we take for granted a lot of times how deep our communities go as long-term practitioners and coaches and teachers, we've been establishing this for years, 
but so many people don't know how to get started and feel like they're doing this just in a vacuum all by themselves. And it's very intimidating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Purple. Yeah. I really appreciate your your wisdom and your story <laughs> and your joining us, even though you're not feeling well. Uh, and yeah, and I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you and collaborate and learn from you. So yeah, me again. too. Uh, ditto. This is great. 